What's up, everyone? We are now live. This is episode 19 of the Strength and Success podcast, titled Don't Bite the Hand That Feeds You. I am Trevor Jaffe. This is Riley Presidente, smiling. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Good. Besides being super tired? Very tired. Very, the fatigue is very high. I, we, we did the math, and I've actually trained 13 straight days in a row just because that's what it is, travel-wise, getting things in. <laughs> yeah, I think I've had one extra day off than you. Just one, because that Tuesday. 12 out of 13? Yeah. Slacker. What yeah. a slacker. Man, <laughs> slacking. You're the young one, too. <laughs> I feel old and decrepit. <laughs> <laughs> old and decrepit. I'm going to tattoo that on my body. <laughs> what do you identify as? Old and decrepit. On your butt cheek? On your butt cheek? Yeah, I took it over the butt cheek. Right. Old and decrepit. Whatever gets you out. Uh, like I said, episode 19, you guys get to ask your questions here on the live. We are on Instagram. We always record these live, which is pretty cool. We are the first podcast that I'm aware of that ever did that. It's been followed by a lot of people, so you're welcome. <laughs> Hence, don't bite the hand that feeds you. But um, we have questions that people have sent to us within our stories because we always put a Q&A up the day before. People can always leave questions here on the live. We will answer them both. Usually be a little bit more detail we get to when we're talking about them as opposed to just typing about them in a paragraph or two. So we get to be a little bit more detailed. And we wanted to talk about don't bite the hand that feeds you. This came up as a discussion topic because I will usually put on YouTube sometimes in the background while I'm working and put educational material on. And Dr. Anthony Horshig, which is known as Squat University, came on and Riley had asked me. Wait, is his name Aaron? It's Aaron. You said Anthony. Oh, did I? I'm sorry. Aaron Horshig. Yeah. Um, I have both of his books. The second one's better than the first one, just being honest there. Uh, the first one's basically just a ripoff of Kelly Starrett. The second one's a lot more detail and information, but uh, Rebuilding Milo is the second one, much more thorough. Don't waste your time on the squat Bible. Stupid. Um, but she said, do you agree with all the hate this guy gets? And that kind of got my wheels turning, and I'm like, there are times where I've strongly disagreed with Aaron Horshig with some of the statements he made. Of course, he made that lifter A, lifter B statement, which was very famous. And in his mind, he was looking at movement quality. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the platform, lifter B is going to have a much bigger, better total. And that's what counts in this sport. And that's what you have to look at is, is the context of the message and where he's coming from. He's a doctor of physical therapy, so he's looking for movement quality, not necessarily the most load moved. However, he's worked with a tremendous amount of strength athletes, including world's strongest man, Martina, Martin Lingus. Lingus? I don't know. I think that's how you say it. I don't I'm know. I'm sorry. Martin something. But super duper strong dude. Uh, you just seen some videos with Donnie Thompson. He's, he's worked with other people getting it back to the platform in a tremendous fashion. Um, one thing that he does that we also do is we put a lot of information and educational material out there. And sometimes people will, will rip on it or rip on you. And that's fine. I can take that. I have thick skin. And I'm sure he doesn't give a shit either. I promise you that. But I always look at it as like, you don't have to agree with the message to listen to it. Yeah. And you don't have to necessarily take it as your own opinion just because that's his or his viewpoint. It's you're going to look at it, you're going to listen to it, you're going to test it, you're going to apply it, and then see if you agree with it rather than just straight bite the hand that feeds you. Because the fact that he puts so much information out there and he doesn't have a membership site, he doesn't have a shoe to sell you, he doesn't have a shirt to sell you, he just has books and all he asks is if you like my material, please buy my book and learn more. That's pretty great of him to actually do that. That's pretty awesome. Whether you agree with his tactics or not. And... One thing he also does is he backs up a lot of his claims, both with, with social proof of the athletes he works with, and in his book, his second book anyways, he lists a tremendous amount of studies and resources saying, hey, this is why I think this information is accurate. Here's studies to back them up. Mm -hmm. Not just, this is my opinion, this is what my coach told me. Here's actual scientific data to back up what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked before about like being a filter, not a sponge. Yes. And how, you know, just because someone puts out information, 
you shouldn't always just readily, easily absorb it and um, take it as gospel. You right. should be a filter and decide like, okay, is this applicable for what I'm looking for? As a coach, like, is this applicable for the athlete? Is this applicable for my program? Is this applicable for the goal? So that's where you have to be a filter rather than just a sponge. Like obviously take in the information, but learn how to apply it and to know when it's going to be beneficial or not. And like, that's kind of the point that I was getting at with a lot of his posts is that, you know, ever since he made that, I mean, I'm sure he's made posts that piss people off in the past, but it seems like ever since he's made that lifter A, lifter B um, post, people, no matter what he posts, jump down his throat and they're like, you're fucking wrong. And it's like, it, he could be like, the sky is blue and people will be like, absolutely not. I think the sky is green. Yeah, it's you're like, a quack. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's they like, hate him more than they hate the information. They almost, yeah, they almost like have a bias against him now because so many people jump down his throat about that one post that they now are biased against everything that he says and they're hating on him for everything that he posts. But yet I've seen plenty of really shitty powerlifters make really shitty opinions on the internet and people are like, no, well, that's his opinion. And it's like, where's the, why is that okay? But his is not. Tasha's on here and she works with John Russell, who gets the same amount of hate. Mm -hmm. And John has more programs he sells. You know, he's got certification, he has books and he has programs and courses. But the same kind of thing is, is you know, not everyone's going to be right yeah. all the time. But if their aim is to help you and to add value, accept it. Don't hate them for adding value. And that's usually what happens is there's a certain like in-club coach or an in-club lifter who thinks they know everything and somebody has a contradictory opinion so they automatically hate on them. Yeah. And it's like, dude, where do you think you got your information from? Well, it's like with, with Aaron, he's also like a, gen, he's generally a gen pop guy. Like he's obviously yeah. worked with powerlifters or whatever. So when like that post specifically, he's probably talking about how movement quality is more important to him specifically in a gen pop situation. But because there are powerlifters that follow it and the, you know, powerlifters are one track mind and, total. and they're a uh, relatively one track mind and closed minded. They're like, well, this is the only way that it should be. It should be lifter B only. And it's like. Yeah, for powerlifting, but right. not necessarily for gen pop. And same thing with like with other things in general. Like if there's a strength and conditioning coach that's posting things that are beneficial for football players, that's probably not going to be applicable for powerlifting. But you're not going to jump down the football uh, the strength and conditioning coach's throat because he posted something that doesn't apply to powerlifting because you know that he's not a powerlifting coach. Yeah. So it's like you can't cherry pick what you think is annoying and wrong and what isn't because of your internal bias that day. Yeah, and it, you have to take it all out of context. Like you look, you mentioned the, the strength conditioning coaches for football, they still love box squats, they still love a high squat, you know, they don't make them squat below parallel, they don't have to break parallel. Um, some do, just as general, because they like to have something out there to be able to go through full ranges of motion. But obviously that works very, very well for football, or it works very, very well for basketball, and you have to understand the context always matters. Like I remember um, Aaron Horshig, Dr. Squat University, made a comment about if you have a low back pump doing RDLs and deadlifts, you're doing them wrong. It's like, nah, not necessarily. Like they're gonna be contracted for a long period of time. Like, if you're doing a single rep, or maybe you're doing it as like a weightlifting thing, it can really change the dynamics, context really matter. It's, it's a broad statement, not a specific statement, but people will bite the hand that feeds yes. them. And it's like, but you're still following this person for the information they're giving you why are you hating on them also let things like that be uh kind of something that allows you to critically think because we think that that is something that a lot of people are lacking is critical critical thinking, thinking skills. skills um and you know like if you read something don't just be like oh yeah that's that's true or oh yeah that's that's wrong you know like think of like really actually legitimately think about what it is that you're reading and think does this apply to my specific goal right and if you are struggling to critically think on if that's correct or not, you probably need to do a little bit more research or be a little bit more well-informed about things. 
But with the internet, we tend to lack a lot of critical thinking skills because we're told, think this way, not this way. Think this way, not this way. Kind of thing. It's just like a black hole for like information <laughs> and uh, opinions. You know, it's a black hole for opinions. It's a lot easier to hate than it is to listen. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're all preaching tolerance, but at the same time, we're fast to jump on someone yes. or hate when they have a different opinion. It's like, wait a minute, it's just an opinion. It's like, Wiki- it's like Instagram was like Wikipedia yeah. when it first started. Like, you know, like everyone was like, don't trust Wikipedia. Anyone can put any information up there. Well, in- Instagram is now Wikipedia where anyone can put right. any information up there. You just have to decide what is accurate and what is not accurate anymore. So uh, use your brain. A little bit. <laughs> Independent thought, but yeah. always test and apply and see rather than just jump to a conclusion or it's popular online to shit on someone. So I'm going to shit on them too. Like, do you even know? Yeah. Is your opinion yours then? Or that's, that's, the, the, that's the epitome of being a sheep if you're just following the herd. Yeah, that's, what, so. that's the kind of inspiration for this was kind of like we've done an episode before that was like, is your opinion really yours? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of part two of that to where like just because you like someone and you hold this person up on a pedestal and they're your idol, whatever, just because they say something doesn't mean that you need to automatically take on that thought process. Right. And if you agree with everything that they say, then you're kind of sheepish. Like you're sheepish. Said. Yeah. It's been me being a sheep if you're just following a herd. Be able yeah. to have independent and critical thinking skills. That's you, probably the most important thing as an athlete or a coach. Yeah. You can like people and still disagree with their opinions. You Absolutely. Can, you, can like, you can think that someone is very strong and intelligent and disagree with their opinions and it's okay but also don't be a dick when you do disagree with their opinions. Riley like, tells me I'm wrong all the time and then we have to go to Google. <laughs> I was right yesterday. About, right. I was right about Black Betty lyrics. Black Betty lyrics. Bambalam. Bambalam. I thought it was Bambalam. Yeah, but no. Maryland's Bambalam. Google says I'm correct. Google says you're correct. All right, cool. So that's that's their, our discussion there on don't bite the hand that feeds you. Evaluate, test, apply, but appreciate people who are going out of their way to give you free knowledge that they spent money on. He's got a degree that cost him $200,000 and he's sharing it with you willingly. And all he asks is maybe if you like it, you buy his book. So don't bite the hand that feeds you. Yes. All right, we got some questions. Um, so I think Gabriel actually sent us two oh, really good ones. Oh, we have two ones. great questions from Gabriel. So the I'm going to blow smoke up his ass. The one that he sent me was, could you shed some light on injury risk from, quote unquote, getting too strong too fast for someone who is new to gear? Um, meaning steroids. It is a great question. And without getting too scientific here, the rate of protein synthesis affects the muscles faster than it does the joints as far as the tendons and ligaments. So what often happens, because you do see an injury rate that's significantly higher um, in the untested side. And people will argue if that comes from the massive water cuts and water manipulations that people do because you can't do that when you have a two-hour weigh-in or if it's from the hormones and the substance. And there is some science showing that people who will use like anti-estrogens and estrogen blockers and diminish estrogen too much are at higher risk for muscle tears or injuries. You know, people who use certain substances like letrozole, um, caber and stuff like that because it can dehydrate the joint itself by minimizing estrogen. So you do actually need some estrogen. And that is a question is, are people disrupting their hormone balance by doing that? Or are they just getting so strong so fast that the tendons and ligaments can't keep up because they don't, they don't grow at the same rate the muscles do when you're on, you know, performance enhancing drugs. Mm-hmm. So that is a great question. It's one of the reasons why I don't push athletes fast. When they tell me they're starting a cycle, I still start them slow and come up slowly with them and progress them over time and save that, that day, that opportunity for the biggest lifts in the meet. Uh, there's no point in taking in the gym. And like you've noticed that when there's a higher rate of injury, when somebody is on performance enhancing drugs or anecdotally anyway, I don't know how to back that up, it just seems to be more the case. There's no reason to push them that hard in the gym that fast because what they lift in the gym doesn't matter. It's what they can lift on the platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gabriel is someone who works with me so he can tell you I don't rush the process. I build over the long term and then we keep staggering, keep building because it's a long-term sport. If he manages to gain 100 pounds 
in this meet, and then he's got six months before the next one, he managed to get another 50 and 70. That's 150, 160, 170 pounds on his total in a one year period. That's phenomenal. Anybody would love that, especially the more advanced and the more strong you get. Uh, getting 150 pounds in your total is significantly huge. Um, he's already an elite level lifter. He'll be competing in the hybrid meet on the invitational day. Actually, has a meet coming up in, in September, I believe, and then, of course, in February. So that is something that you definitely want to be concerned about is not pushing too hard, too soon, too fast. Just because you have that strength there doesn't mean you need to express it in the gym. Yeah. Fatigue has to be managed the exact same way. So, you know, just because you feel like you're Superman and you're invincible doesn't mean that you can go 12 weeks without deloading. Right. Like, you know, if someone is just starting, I'm probably going to keep them on the same type of deload pattern because that's kind of what they're already used to. Um, and it also is like really important to understand auto regulation as a lifter too. Um, most people don't understand this until they get like later into their career and like, you know, like RP and RIR and like things like that. But like understanding actually how your body is feeling. Like we were just talking in the car today about like how tired we are every morning. Yep. And I was like, you know, it's probably from fatigue. And then we were like, oh, wow, 12 and 13 days yeah. of training in a row. Oversight. Yeah, it probably is fatigue. <laughs> yeah. So we have a rest day tomorrow. Thank God. Yeah. So it is a lot of fatigue management like just just because you get on gear doesn't mean that you're going to be able to lift heavy all the time max 100 percent whatever without deloading at all so someone who's starting new i'm not going to change anything about their deload schedule they may be able to lift more weight but they're probably going to deload the same uh, like trevor said not rushing the process you know not not pushing them to 100 percent maxes every single week just because oh well i have this magic pill that's going to make me stronger now or magic serum whatever to make me stronger now like that's not exactly how it works um a lot of people think that just because they get on they're gonna add like 150 pounds right. to their total, yeah. you know? and that's not how it works like the same amount of work and effort has to go into it if anything the only thing that's really impacting at a high level it seems from studies is the recovery process yep. it's not that it's going to just magically make your deadlift 100 pounds heavier or your squat 100 pounds heavier it's just going to make your recovery a little bit better yeah and you know the outlier is going to respond a lot better than the everyday individual person you can tell you're the outlier if you've partied really hard on saturday night and stayed out the four in the morning and pee on your bench on monday you're an outlier yeah. if you party really hard on saturday night and, and you felt like shit on monday you're just like everybody else yeah. so you're gonna get the average result that everybody else gets to it's not a magic it's it helps but it's not a magic bullet like riley's saying so it's not going to instantly add an amazing thing it's kind of like wraps people are like oh i'm putting wraps on we got 100 pounds on my squat no you're not <laughs> you gotta learn how to use them Honestly, beginners even think that about knee sleeves and wrist wraps. Yeah. You know, like those things aren't going to add to your total the same way. They're a support system. You it's know? always a process. Yeah. yeah. So, and you're not going to be able to rush this process as much as you want to. It's going to take time. It's a slow journey. You're always refining things. You're always learning things. You're always collecting data. It's a slow process. Yes. Um, okay. So next question is... Oh, do we have one in the chat? Yeah, so Jules asking a question. Do you ever choose for an athletes for wraps? What is your observation so far in coaching career, even if it's a personal choice? When is a good time to choose wraps? And no, uh, my job is to facilitate an athlete's goal. Our job, I should say. Our job is to facilitate an athlete's goal. It is never the coach's job to tell them where to compete, when to compete, or how to compete. If somebody tells me they want to do gear, um, like multiply, single black, cool. Uh, I'm not going to coach it, but I'm not going to tell them not to. If someone tells me they want to compete in wraps, cool. I'm going to coach that. It's a raw lift. I'm going to compete them in wraps or in sleeves or would they want to do this meet or they want to do that meet. It's never my job. If I think it's a bad idea, I will usually let them know, like, hey man, you just competed last month, it's probably not the best timing, you're not gonna see a tremendous amount of progress, you've already been breaking down. Like, I will make them aware of that and say, in my opinion, it's not the most ideal scenario for you to compete at that meet. However, 
I will never choose a goal for an athlete because it's not my job. And if the athlete themselves haven't chosen the goal, they're not going to work towards it. Yep. If you're picking or determining the path for the athlete, first, you're an asshole. But sorry, no, no apologies there. Second, they're not going to work for it because it's what you want, yep. not what they want. Yep. And that's where the mental aspect comes in with, with coaching is if they don't want it, they're not going to earn it. Yep. Really, really important to understand that. So sometimes, and more often than I want to admit, that's really what happens when an athlete isn't seeing progress is because they don't truly want it, which means they're not doing everything they possibly can to achieve it. Yep. That's a hard pill to swallow and most people don't want to be that honest with themselves. Um, but I agree 100% with what Trevor said. Like, I will never choose um, the lift. I'll never choose that they compete in wraps. The only thing that I ever, when someone gives me, um, like, meets. For instance, Dawn a couple months ago, uh, she wanted to do a meet. And I was like, okay, that would make four meets in 12 months for her. Um, Dawn is a master's lifter. Dawn has had a couple injuries. And I'm like, four meets in one year is kind of a lot. Um, she wants to be in wraps for all of them because she doesn't want to compete in sleeves. I'm like, that's kind of a lot of overload. I would prefer that you didn't if you could pick the most important. I think that would right. be better for your longevity in the sport. And she was like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that that would have been four meets in a 12-month time span. So sometimes, yes, I'm not going to tell her that she can't do it if she wanted to absolutely do it. We could have, but I just thought it was a bad idea. Yeah. And she was like, oh, I didn't realize it was that many. So I will always ask that question. I kind of try to look at that scope of things. Um, also, if someone wants to compete in wraps, the one thing that I'm going to ask is, are you self-wrapping or do you have someone to wrap you every single week? Because if you don't have someone to wrap you every single week or you're not self-wrapping, competing in wraps is going to be a really challenging thing because if you have no one to wrap you every single week it has an element of stress yeah i've had athletes do that where someone who was typically wrapping their knees doesn't show up and they freak out they don't know how to self-wrap and then i have other athletes like like danny vicente completely self-wrapped and phil phil um herndon completely Mm self-wrapped and uh so you know there it it eliminates that stress it adds more stress to them as far as wrapping because the hands get tired but they didn't have to rely on anybody else for the entire prep so unless you know how to self-wrap really well you have to make sure you have all your ducks in a row it comes to competing in wraps the whole time absolutely and that's why i don't necessarily say you have to compete in wraps or you need to grow to wraps it's when you want to because then you're going to earn it then you're going to work for it yeah it's a choice um garage garage gym daddy 220 he's in florida somewhere i don't remember where ac in garage or man up without it um If we work out in the garage, there's no AC and the doors open. It is uh, probably 100 plus degrees in there with the Florida humidity. It it does suck. Although the best part is like you warm up fast. But after like an hour being in there, yeah, it does suck after an hour being in there. Now, truth be told, um, if I don't have the cats here, my son's cats, I will open the door to the house and leave the door to the garage closed so the air can kind of push its way in there slowly. Even then, I would still say it's pretty probably warm. in the 90s. Yeah, it's still, pretty warm, but like it's not as humid that way a little bit, but it's still pretty warm. Um, I've had garage AC before where I kept the garage door closed. And I had an AC vent cut in there. That was spectacular. It was really, really nice. Um, but ultimately, a lot of meats in Florida are in like these warehouse open style gyms and they get hot. Like Jordan's, Jordan's Meat Gym, the, the showcase... Um, it wasn't exceptionally hot out, but it got hot in the gym because there was no AC and there was a lot of people in there. So if that's the environment you're going to compete in, it might as well be the environment you're going to train in because a lot of people who weren't used to that started fading. We saw a lot of people missing deadlifts because they were fading by the end of the day. But if you're used to it, you're not going to fade because you know how to hydrate, you know how to prepare for it. It doesn't shock you as much. It's like when people compete at, it's like players that lift up. Play at Death Valley. Yes. When they go anywhere else, it's really easy for them. And then that is the most intimidating stadium. I yeah. couldn't believe it when I drove by. I'm like, wow, that really is scary. 
Uh, I personally, like, as much as it is draining, like, I do definitely, like, fade really fast. So I have to, like, um, hydrate a lot and get a lot of carbs and everything in. But as much as, like, that sucks, I prefer the heat because I'm, like, a lizard. Um, I like, I'm, like, cold if it's lower than, like, 75 degrees out now. So I like the heat. So I say man up. Florida. <laughs> Adapted. Frankie Fresh. I don't know if I understand this question, but I'm going to try. How much should I worry about having my greens and can I just drink... Bolt House? I don't know what that is. It's a, um, it's like a smoothie thing. Oh, and can I put whiskey in it? Um, the micronutrients are super important. Mm -hmm. We need them. We need things like calcium, magnesium. They're very responsible. Calcium is responsible for muscle contraction. Magnesium is responsible for so many different enzyme enzymatic conversions, like 300 different enzymatic conversions in your body. It helps regulate your hormones like a thyroid and stuff like that. So absolutely, you should be having some source of micronutrients, whether it is a multi-mineral, multivitamin pill or a green supplement or so forth. Uh, should you put whiskey in it? Uh, I, I don't know, I'm not really a drinker. Um, but I would think that if you're looking for it for the health purposes, destroying your liver at the same time probably isn't the best way to go Seems counterintuitive. <laughs> Although I can tell you, thanks to uh, Jordan Jarrell's gym, uh, DadBot220 on Instagram, that a whiskey and deadlifts is phenomenal, but I did that once in all of like five years, so. It is just fun to do that, but I don't know if I would take my greens and my supplements that way every single day. It's probably also, not I the best idea. I don't know if I don't know if greens and whiskey is even gonna taste good. That sounds awful. Yeah. Anything yeah. in whiskey sounds awful, actually. Yeah, it's, yeah, gross. Okay, um, I felt a pinching pinching sensation around my axilla when benching. Is this common or cause for concern? No, a pinching sensation anywhere is not common. <laughs> well, that's not true. I'm a butt pincher. <laughs> <laughs> She's a nipple pincher. <laughs> They're there. They're there. <laughs> uh, no, a pinching sensation when you're lifting is not common. Um, is it cause for concern? Depends upon how uncomfortable it is. You know, it, it could be a small strain. Like when you were benching, you felt that. You could be a small strain in your lat or in one of the rotators, like the Terry's Minor or Spanish, which are external rotators. Uh, it was, it would, I would be aware of it, but I would be hesitant to say to be concerned about it. Because if, if it's very mild and it just happened one time and it's not continuously happening, it's just a strain. If it's something that happens every single time you bench and it's really uncomfortable, then I would be a little bit more concerned about it and maybe seek an evaluation from a clinician like a physical therapist or a chiropractor and see if there's something in there like a shoulder impingement or some type of mild tear or strain that you need to be more aware of that requires corrective exercise. But you know, if it's one of those things that just happened one time when you're pressing, I wouldn't necessarily be concerned with it. It's probably just a little bit of fatigue or a poor pattern and you managed to strain something. Yeah, if anything, I think we talked about it last night. It could either be an over tucking or a lack of depression, like a lack of shoulder. A lack of depression, depression. in the shoulders, yeah. So um, someone strains a high lat insertion. Yeah, so uh, let's see. Should feet be closer or further away from bench for leg press for engagement? Wait, sorry. <laughs> Hold on, I messed that up. Should feet be closer or further away from bench for leg engagement for press? Okay. So there's never gonna be a right and wrong. I have seen people post that everyone should bench with their feet flat, and I've seen people post that you're stronger with your feet tucked. And I, having worked with you know thousands of athletes at this point, there are some people who do better with their feet out in front and a little bit wide. Jen Ratzinger benches that way and benches very well that way, about 215 at 114, which is pretty impressive, right? Uh, Riley has noticed that her benches are pretty close together with the feet flat or feet tucked, but they're about 10 pounds stronger with the feet tucked back and close under the bench. She's going to get a little bit of a higher position and she gets a little bit more leg drive that way. I love being on camera because I get, I'm always animated and doing things yeah. that they don't get to hear on the podcast on Monday, but I'm, I move a lot. Um, it's one of those things where you're going to find your individual pattern. 
which is why I'm anti-dogma. When someone says, this is the best way to bench, this is the best way to squat, it's the best way for you. It's not going to be the best way for everyone else. And unfortunately, this is a trial and error situation. Mm -hmm. If you compete in the USAPL, you have to have your feet flat, but that doesn't mean they still can't be tucked back and flat. Some people tuck them back. Uh, Marissa Inda is a great example that she's a great high arch, her feet are tucked back and flat. And then the polar opposite of that, who still has an amazing arch, is Sean Noriega. His feet are all out in front. He pushes out in front so he can get constant leg drive pushing back into the bar. Um, two, two completely contrasting styles, two amazing benchers at lightweight classes, 183, and she competes at 114, I think. And she's also benched, I think, 203 or 209 at 114, somewhere around there. Um, so there's, there's no right or wrong way. It's which way do you feel stronger? With your feet out and wide, you're gonna have better stability. With your feet tucked back, you're gonna have less range of motion and maybe a little bit more leg drive off the chest. The caveat of that is when you're getting that leg drive and off the chest is you're gonna lose some stability. So which do you need more of? Do you need more stability or do you need more leg drive? And that's how you're gonna figure out which one's better for you. I usually, tell, if a lifter isn't sure, I usually tell them, or if they're like wanting to try both, you know, um, you got to give each one a couple of weeks to figure out whether you like it or not. Like if you try it one time and it feels weird, yeah, it's going to feel weird. It's different. Um, First time you're trying it. yeah. So give it a couple of weeks to try it out. And usually if a lifter is like, well, I don't know which one to do. I usually tell them to go with what feels more natural. Like I'm like, just set up and whatever feels most natural, then roll with it. Yeah. Um, like obviously nothing's going to feel comfortable. Like you should feel uncomfortable in the bench press, but like whatever foot position feels the most natural is what I usually tell them to go with. But, um, um. I like, I like, I prefer them both. I'm just stronger with feet tucked. So if your glutes slip off the bench during a meet, is the lift still good? Newbie question. No, no. Uh, if your glutes come off the bench and the judges notice your glutes come off the bench, you're going to get a red light for butt pop. So you want to keep contact. Now the rule is there has to be some level of cheek contact and people will argue how much has to be in contact because some people who have a really high arch just have the very, very, very bottom of their glutes touching that bench. So the best tip I was given as far as judging is concerned is if you can see through daylight, the butt is off. Yep. If the bottom of the glute is still touching, that is not a butt pop. No matter how much they leg drive, as long as the bottom of the glute stays in contact. Now, emphasis on glute, not hamstring. Mm -hmm. Just because the hamstring is touching doesn't mean the glute is touching. So if you do not see the glute itself come off the bench entirely, it's not a butt pop. If the glute does come off, you can see through and see daylight. That's why most judges will get down on their knee and see through if somebody has a hard arch to see if it comes through. <coughs> Sorry, choking on air. That is a butt pop. <laughs> Happens all the time. I don't know how to breathe. Uh, okay, another question is, more important for early AM lifter, day prior carbs or day of post-lift carbs? This was a good question that Charlie had sent. Um, and I went into a little bit of detail in my story. Now, the glycogen you're using for lifting, it's unlikely you're going to completely deplete all of your glycogen necessary for lifting in a single session. That takes a long time. So chances are, the workout that you do on Tuesday is fueled by all the calories and carbs you've had through Monday. But what's most important and what is, is absorbed a lot faster is making sure you're hydrated mm -hmm. and you're loaded with electrolytes, sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium because that's what's responsible for muscle contraction. Mm -hmm. That is gonna be used during that session. Even if you have carbs before your workout and carbs during your workout, it's unlikely that they're going to break down and be converted into glycogen that your body can use in time. Uh, but what they do is it blunts the cortisol response, so it lowers your stress response to that training session, and it also helps enhance recovery, so it's more, so there's more glucose available that your body can convert and create glycogen, so you start to recover faster. People tend to use an intra-workout for hydration purposes or to enhance recovery time and speed, what they used to consider the so-called anabolic window. That wasn't necessarily true because protein is still circulating in your bloodstream for as much as like 16 hours, depending on the source you've had. 
So there's still amino acids in your system. You don't necessarily have to ingest them while training. You can though, which also again, your body's like a sponge at that point. It's gonna help uptake them a little bit from the insulin release that happens from an intro workout source. But more importantly is making sure that you have plenty of adequate carbs before. But if you're an early AM workout, start pounding hydration the second you get up. Get up, have 12 ounces of water, put salt in there if you have to, take a magnesium and a calcium pill because it's gonna be responsible for muscle contraction and so forth, and go from there. That's the priority is making sure you are hydrated because you're already fed from the day before. Yeah, I've had plenty of workouts where I've like eaten pretty minimal in the morning and been fine getting through my workout and actually having good workouts because I was fueled properly the day before. Obviously, like Trevor said, you know, making sure to get hydration in before, but I've probably trained fasted and like been able to hit PRs and whatnot. Um, not that I recommend training fasted or anything, but just like based off of situations or whatever that has happened because I was adequately fueled the day before and hydrated in the morning, I had no issues. So I think day before is more important. And I think when we were just in Tampa, um, James was talking about that. He trained fasted for that session and it's a hundred degree gym. Yeah. There's no AC in, in, in elite strength conditioning. It's a hundred degrees outside and he had trained fast and he was just worried about hydration and it's because he's not cutting for his meat. He was able to eat as much as he wants the day before and he yeah. said I had a great session. So yep. he was just hydrated, not fed. We got a lot of things coming through here. Let's see what we got. Okay. Uh, Sarah, the something. I have a short arms and I would love to move a wider bench grip, but I find it much stronger with narrow grip. I've tried strengthening triceps, etc. to no avail. Any suggestions? Wider is going to require more pecs. Wire, yeah. I was just about to say wider is going to require more pecs. More narrow is going to require more triceps. So your triceps are probably strong. already strong yeah. and you're failing to get them in the wider grip because you have short arms. Not saying you have to, but the majority of short arm benchers tend to have a medium to narrow grip. Mm -hmm. Jeremy Hornster comes to example for that. Um, Dan Longo. Dan Longo is a phenomenal bencher. Um, I think he did it at 220. I remember if he did it at 190, 220, but he pressed over 500. And he has the closest freaking grip I've ever seen in my life because he's had his shoulder reconstructed from an, an injury when he was in the service, I believe. Um, there's a 198 right now who, Drake Stevens, I hope I pronounced that correct. He benches like damn near 500 as well at 198, uh, also relatively medium grip. So the shorter arm lifter usually benefits from the more medium to narrow grip. I'm saying usually, it doesn't mean you have to. But that's because you are probably having strong triceps that you can drive into the bar. The wider you go, the more you're going to be reliant on pec strength and the less reliant you're going to be on tricep strength. If you're already strong at the grip that you're at, I personally, I would recommend just continuing to get stronger yeah. at that grip. Um, because if you're trying to go wider and it's weaker, the shorter range of motion isn't benefiting you because your pecs aren't right. strong enough. But with the uh, closer grip, I had the same kind of problem. I have long arms, so I would love to have a shorter range of motion, <laughs> but the wider that I go, the more of a struggle that I have. So I do much more, I do much better with right. a more narrow-ish grip than most. Um, so I would say if you're already strong at that position and the, uh, the ladder is weaker, there's no need to switch it. All right, this is a good question from Kyle. Training, I'm oh, sorry. Initiating the squat from the hips versus the knees. What are your thoughts if you have it? Okay, so this is a great debate. Uh, I shouldn't call it a debate, but it's more of a, a, a reflection of the times, right? A majority of the lifting advice that's still out there comes from the multiply world because raw really just kind of started 11, 12 years ago. It was all single ply and multiply up until that point from the 80s on. So it was 30 years of multiply or geared lifting. And geared lifting, the tendency was to go wider and wider and wider with the stance and sit back more and more and more and more because you could ride the gear. So they would always focus on breaking at the hips first. When raw started and people had to hit depth without the gear, it became pretty apparent that breaking at the hips and standing wide made it much more difficult to actually hit depth without the gear on and have any usable strength to come up. 
So stances began to narrow and people began to break more at the knees first, like an Olympic weightlifter, because weightlifters were squatting incredible amounts of weight, high bar, but they have an oscillating barbell. They can ride the rhythm of dropping down and coming up. As usual, there's a middle ground somewhere between the two. Most often, it's ideal if someone can break both at the hips and at the knees simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Some people, depending upon their proportions, like a very long, tall lifter is going to need to segment where they hinge the hips back first and then allow the knees to go forward. And other people are reversing that. If they're very, very short and stumpy legs, they can just go forward with the knees and not break up the hips at all. Um, not that he's stumpy legs, so sorry, I apologize, but, but John Hack is someone who's a great example of high bar, knees forward only. There is no hinge in his squat whatsoever. He's completely knee driven. He squats like a weightlifter, just a little bit wider and in heels to get the depth. He's a great example of that. Now he's an outlier to some degree, so I'm not saying you should follow his pattern. But what I'm saying is, is there's always a middle ground based off your proportions. If you're long leg, you probably should focus on the hip break. If you're shorter leg, you should probably focus on pushing the knees. The wider your stance, the more hip hinge, the more narrow your stance, the more knee drive. But ultimately, somewhere in the middle of breaking knees and hips simultaneously is going to be best because then you're not losing the rhythm of the squat itself. Yeah, it's less about choosing a side with one of those and more about fitting it to the lifter's morphology. Um, I wouldn't do, my legs are very long. I would not do very well if I only broke at the knees. Like I would get not close to depth at all. So yeah. I have to hinge. Have to hinge. Yeah. All right, that's a great question, Kyle. Because it's one of those where he trains in a, in a, a gym where they're predominantly multiply lifters mm -hmm. and they're gonna have very different mechanics than a raw lifter would. All right, so another question. When is the right and wrong time to incorporate chains in training? <laughs> when you're ready to look like a badass, incorporate chains. Now, accommodating resistance, whether it be through chains, bands, or believe it or not, through things like the slingshot, because that is a form of accommodating resistance because you're making it lighter on the bottom and so you can use more weight at the top. That's a form of accommodating resistance. They're, they're when necessary and for what necessary. Like, what are you trying to achieve? Um, they're great tools to train around an injury, that's for sure. So if like in the bottom of a squat, you're feeling a tremendous amount of issue, like a, a pain or an issue with the knee or the hips or whatever, putting a bunch of chain on there where you're mostly loading the top is gonna make that a little bit easier so you can still get a training effect. The idea though is with the accommodating resistance of some kind is that you're manipulating the strength curve and you're forced to accelerate that growing load as it keeps going to build speed or power. And that's the idea behind it. Um, there are studies that show Bands and chains do help enhance strength, but like anything else, it's in the short term. Like you can't always use chains and expect yeah. to get that result. It's usually, that's why you usually see it in Three waves. Weeks. Three weeks or four week waves, small blocks where you have it in there and then you take it away or you use it at times. Uh, in my athlete guidelines, I talk about if they want to use it, they can. They just have to incorporate to the weights about even. So if it calls for 75% for five by five and it's 75%, they can load 70% of bar weight and 10% chain weight, so it actually equals 80% at the top, and the middle range is gonna equal about 75%. Yeah. So if they ever wanna incorporate that in, they can. Now, nine out of 10 lifters don't read the guidelines that I put for them, so they're <laughs> like, when can I use it? Like, you can use it any fucking time you want, it's in there. Yeah. Um, so there are times where I will program it if I need a lifter to work on something, but it can always be used. Is it something that has to be used? No. Chad Wesley Smith never used a combining resistance, and he broke the American all-time squat record at like 933. Um, as a super heavyweight. So he's one of those that was more dealing with straight weight and just working on speed and power and recovery was better. Everything works, not everything works forever. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily cooler or better. It just sometimes is more useful for whatever you need to get at that moment. For As far as accommodating resistance goes, like most people use it for speed work, right? Um, but you should be aiming to be fast all the time. 
So if you're only, if the only time that you are focusing on moving with intention and speed is when there are bands or chains on the bar, you're kind of missing the point of training in general. I think. Say it again. If you, which part? That the whole sentence. <laughs> if you're only, I don't remember now. If you're only, <laughs> if you're only moving fast and with intention when you have bands and chains on the bar, then you're missing the intention of chaining in, in general. Like Every it raw rep be, should be fast. It should be fast. Yeah. So. You know, if you're, and Frankie actually had this problem of being uh, very complacent last week and non-aggressive with his lifts, and it showed. It was very lazy and um, lackadaisical. So if the only time that you are moving fast is when there's accommodating resistance on the bar, reevaluate your training in general. Um, You should move a lot faster. But also, as far as accommodating resistance goes, I do prefer, just in like a general sense, I do prefer chains over bands because bands provide a false sense of bar path and stability. So if people get so used to training with bands all the time, they're going to be used to that straight up and down kind of uh, bar path that the band is forcing, right. right? Which most people don't entirely move straight up and down. Like that's just not how most of us are built. Whereas the chain is going to provide some instability and make you focus on controlling that bar path so that way it is more in line and more of a natural bar path for you while you're fighting the stability challenge. Um, so like Trevor said, you can really use them whenever you want, but ask yourself why. Why? Right. Yeah. As long as you're moving the weight with intent and fast, you should, you're creating that power. And that's a great point with like banded bench. Uh, there's artificial stability mm-hmm. with banded deadlifts. There's artificial stability. So if you tend to lose your stability in the lift, it's probably not the best way for you to train where the chains are going to move and slide a little bit, which force you to really focus on your stability. So all of you who, uh, missed your third attempt at a meet on a bench press and said, I just misgrooved it. Maybe you should be taking a couple heavy benches with chains before the meet to build that stability up. Maybe you should misgroove it more. <laughs> Force yourself <laughs> to fight the groove. All right. Do you have many clients who respond better or only to train three times a week? Or I'm sorry, it's a little blurry. Do you have many clients who respond better or only want to train three times a week or yes. most four or five times a week? Yeah, I have a few clients that because of their life and their schedule, they had to switch to three days a week and actually it's been better for them. Uh, Tong. Tong, who's in Tampa, Tong La, um, he's an engineer and he's newly married and he has a wife who wants attention as well, not just a gym. And he had to switch to three days a week and he's actually been making tremendous progress. Uh, what you lose in the three days a week is any and all like fluff. It becomes a little bit more specific. So he basically does a squat, a press, a hinge of some type and a row variation or a back exercise of every kind every session. So something like that, but he's actually PR'd his front squat, he's PR'd his back squat, he just tied his best ever bench but he moved it 10 times faster kind of thing. Um, there's some people who just really respond well to three days a week because of the added recovery. Yep. If someone's trying to build more muscle mass and do things, it's not always the best way because they don't have a lot of time and retention or volume with three days a week, but if you already have some muscle mass and you just need to enhance recovery or strength, it is a great way to do that. Yeah, I have a few that are on three days a week just based off of like work schedules and like what they can actually, um, when they can make it to the gym. Like I know one is an overnight nurse and so she does like four, uh, four overnights and then she can, so she only has three days to train and hers is kind of segmented into, she does a squat and a bench, she does a, um, deadlift and a bench. And then her third day is more of like variations, like an incline press, your overhead, your split squats, things like that. Um, so she's still on her third day, she's still getting like volume in the accessory work to kind of try to help build as much as possible while still getting all of her comp lifts in. And that's working super, super well for her. I have another girl who's going to go to that same kind of style. Um, she was three days anyways, and it was squat one day, bench one day and deadlift one day. And now she's going to be switching to squat bench, uh, bench deadlift and accessories. So it's whatever 
works and ultimately like whatever someone can get in is going to benefit them more than if they're skipping. So if you're, if you're programming someone for five days a week and they're consistently yeah. only hitting three, there's no point to program them five days a week because they're obviously not getting it in there. I've had a lifter ask for five days and every week it was the same thing. I only got three days this week. I only got four days this week. I'm like, I'm taking the fifth day away. Like, no, I'm like, dude, you haven't hit it in three weeks. <laughs> yeah, you're only going to, you're only going to get benefit out of what you can actually go in and do. So right. yeah, three days a week is totally fine to make strength progress too. But like Trevor said, you may not be may not be a bodybuilder anytime soon because you may not be building as much muscle as possible. Uh, let's go to Gabriel's second question. Yes. That was a really good one. Uh, mind breaking down for people why it's actually a pretty good idea for a coach to hire a coach for themselves. So in a previous podcast with somebody else, he was very anti-coach shouldn't have a coach because everyone should just go to the other coach's coaches instead of him. And I, I, I strongly disagree with that. Yes. Um, first, I think you should never coach if you're unwilling to get coaching yourself. If you're not willing to be coachable, why do you even bother coaching other people? Uh, I absolutely agree that coaches should have, at some point, they don't always have to have it, but at some point, coaches should have other people coaching them. From my experience, because I, I work with many athletes, um, it takes a tremendous amount of stress off my shoulders to not have to think about myself and then having that built-in level of accountability. Because if it's written by somebody else, I'm going to fucking do it. Yep. If it's written by myself, it's very easy to skip that today. But like, oh, I'm just not feeling it today. Maybe I'll put it in tomorrow or I'll do it next week or whatever. But when it's written by somebody else, I'm like, I will stay there or add it to a different day to make sure it's done within that week because it, you get that automatic accountability. If I'm paying for it, I'm going to do it. The other aspect of it is it's one of the best ways to learn. Uh, I will use myself as a lab rat often when I don't have meets or things coming up and hire coaches who are different in perspective and different in programming to what I am to learn what they believe in and learn what they like to utilize and see if I can apply it to people I work with. So I've had about six different coaches in the 15 years that I've, strength coaches, I've had three different nutrition coaches, but six different strength coaches in the years that I've been competing in strength sports to learn and utilize different methods in different ways. So that is the best way to acquire an education is to pay for it. Mm -hmm. It is the best way to acquire accountability is to pay for it. You're not going to waste your time if you're paying somebody, especially me, you know, it's my heritage, I'm stingy. So <laughs> I'm going to do it if I'm paying for it and that's important. The other thing is when I'm done, I don't want to think about myself when I've written for so many different athletes and I have to be self-evaluating and look at things and do things. I want to just go into the gym and enjoy it. And somebody else has taken the time to put a program or thing for me to follow. I can just go in like every one of my athletes and plug and play and follow and not have to worry about it, not have to think about it, not have to do anything. That's a tremendous weight off my shoulders. There are so many times where it's been beneficial to me to have somebody else do my programming other than myself mm -hmm. so I don't have to worry about it. Absolutely. Uh, those who pay, pay attention. So if you're if you're paying for a coach, you're probably going to pay attention to it because you're spending money on mm -hmm. it. Um, that goes for charging clients also. Clients that pay are going to pay more attention. Yep. But um, I have always had a coach for the most part. Um, my When I first started, I just followed like a template or whatever and didn't have a coach. But I've always had a coach. And it is really beneficial to me it's been probably like the biggest driving force of like learning from other coaches about what to do and what not to do um for training for other clients so it's been really really beneficial to me to um have a coach i've learned a lot of what not to do and what i don't like and what i don't think works well i've learned a lot of what i do think works well and truthfully if i were to program for myself i would do a lot of things that i wanted to do rather than things that i should be doing um you know like i'm really good at like JM presses. I probably JM press all the time. I'm really good at, um, I really like like deficit deadlifts. I'd probably be doing those pretty often. Um, 
are those things that I need? Probably not all the time. Right. If you're already um, good at them, it's probably not attacking a weakness. It's tr- it's working on a strength that's already there. Right. So I would probably be doing a lot more of the things that I want to do instead of things that I need to do. And sometimes you need that little bit of like outside objective eye to tell you things that you're overlooking. Like it's like an oversight. You know, like we were just talking in the mm-hmm. car about how training 12 or 13 days is an oversight on fatigue and everything. You know, like when you have a coach, they can be like, okay, well, you're you know, this piece is missing. So this is what we need to add in. Like this little puzzle piece is what's missing. We need to add it in. Um, whereas if you didn't have a coach, you may overlook that because you are so hyper focused on yourself anyways, that you're look overlooking the major things that are yelling like in your face. Right. Um, so I think it's benefit. I don't think there's anything wrong with a coach having a coach. Like that doesn't diminish your value as a coach to have a coach. I'm more apt to work with a coach who's had a coach or still has a coach yeah. than somebody who doesn't because, you know, I see that as, as a, a sign of arrogance when someone's like, well, I don't need coaching. I already know everything there is to know. It's like the most expensive lesson you're going to want, you're going to learn is the one you refuse to learn. And that's usually what happens is when you think you know everything, you absolutely know nothing. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. So the more you think you know, the less you actually know. And the people who think they don't know enough, the imposter syndrome usually know the most. So it's one of those where if someone's willing to have a coach or is working with a coach, I'm more apt to work with them as my coach because um, I know it's not just their opinion or their reflection or they know all. It's they're still learning. Yes. Because your opinions and your data and information available to you is always going to evolve. It's always going to change. The things we did 10 years ago, we stopped doing now. And the things that we did 20 years ago are just coming back and people think they're new. It's like, this is what we did 20 years ago. Uh, God, I'm old. (laughs) What's old is new again and what's new is old. That's just how it works. Nothing, nothing's really new or been invented under the sun. Somebody else has done it or done done it before. Talked about it. Like we were just talking about. I'm I'm a historian. Uh, she asked me about Renegade Rose yesterday, and I, I brought up John Davis, who like I don't want to say he invented the move, but he kind of pioneered them because he wrote the book Renegade Strength Training for Athletes. He dealt with extreme sports athletes, so like BMX athletes, skateboarders, snowboarders, mountain climbers, stuff like that. And I had his book. I have it somewhere. And he was the one who kind of pushed for the Renegade Rose. And then Mike Mahler, who was a kettlebell guy, who's now a hormone-optimized specialist, was the big guy who started pushing Renegade Rose for MMA athletes. And it comes back full circle again. Now you see Dr. Andrew Locke including a version of the Renegade Row in his Lock 5 because of the way it works, the multifitis. And so that's been around since 2001 that I'm aware of. And it may have even been around before that. Um, but it's one of those things where people are like, oh, this new movement, Renegade Rose, and they have no idea where it came from, but I've heard about it since 2001. It's like, okay, so it's not really new. That's 20 years ago now, literally 20 years ago. And it's been around forever and people are just understanding what value it offers. But it was probably ignored for the last 10 years until Andrew Locks are putting it in his warm up. People are like, wait a minute, this offers tremendous value. Let's bring it back. And everyone's like, oh, this new exercise is great. It's like, it's not new. I love those. I asked about them because I was like, hey, I've been putting these in people's programs. I like just curious as to what other people think about them. Hence me always wanting to learn from a new coach. <laughs> I like the way Josh put this question uh, off in the shower. Alone. Purpose of zombie squat for people that refer to it as Bruce Lee shit and haven't heard of them. I love zombie squats. Zombie squats is a form of a front squat where you don't get to hold the bar at all. So it really forces you to focus on the actual tension and bracing. And because the bar is not held in the actual hands, you can't cheat it. You actually have to depress the scapula down. So it puts you in the most optimal shoulder position. It puts you in the most optimal anterior core activation position and allows you to take a full range of motion squat. So and ju- loaded. And loaded. Yes. Mm-hmm. So 
A goblet squat, which does the exact same thing, you're only gonna be able to load that as heavy as the heaviest dumbbell in your gym. And for some gyms, that's 65 pounds. For other gyms, it's 100 pounds. Some might go to 150. So you're only able to hold in a goblet squat what the heaviest dumbbell is. Josh is busy doing doubles at 275 with a zombie squat. That's a lot more load. So it's, it's like zombie squat plus. I mean, I'm sorry, goblet squat plus. So once you've maxed out your goblet squat, you can then move on to the zombie squat, which teaches perfect squat mechanics or ideal squat mechanics, I should say. And it's been used for great low back recovery for Josh who had a nerve issue where he has a pinching feeling because he would go into an anterior pelvic tilt and you can't switch your pelvis orientation in a zombie squat or that bar is gonna fall off of you. So it teaches an ideal squatting pattern. Everyone should probably use it for a couple sets as a warm up for anterior core activation and just building a squat pattern itself. That's why I program them is for purely for um, like a priming movement. I have a client, Helen, who has them before her squats because she tends to just literally fold like a chair into her squat. So she starts with a zombie squat so that way we can prime keeping that like more upright torso because she has to do it. Um, it's not, I'm not making her take it heavy. You know, I'm making, I'm having her do like some reps in there so she can like focus on um, keeping that consistent pattern yep. and then she goes right into her squats and so she's already ingrained that pattern for her with a regular back squat. Which is why you always hear me pontificate position before power yep. because if you're out of position you're going to lack power so you have to be able to establish the proper position to generate force and that's why it's really important to always work those mechanics and do these things and yes yeah, some people might see them as rudimentary or different or different but you know what they usually aren't very good lifters, so I don't worry about their opinion at all. You know, they're not working with high-level athletes. They're just stubborn, and they like doing what they do because it's easier for them. You know, they put their pajamas on and they go to work. Uh, pajamas. They're gear lifters that give him a bunch of shit in the gym about all this stuff and make him do for all. So if Jeff Bezos can still have someone manage his wealth, we should be willing to always have a coach. And that's exactly right. Um, Jeff Bezos is the richest guy in the world and he has someone who manages his wealth strictly so he can focus on other projects he wants to work on, like Blue Origin. Uh, Jeff Bezos, for those who don't know, is the creator and owner of Amazon, the, the majority owner of Amazon.com, which is now one of the largest companies in the world. I think it's second largest to Apple. Um, he's a majority owner and somebody manages his wealth so he can focus on what's con uh, productive to him. Which and so is, he can focus on probably making, creating more wealth. Yeah. Yeah. It, it allows him to focus on what he wants to. He doesn't want to focus on managing his wealth. He wants to focus on creating wealth, which he's much better at. So. Things like that. And he's about to fly into space next week, I think, or something like that. So kind of cool. That's what taking that, that burden off your shoulders does for you. Yeah, you can go to space. <laughs> Do you really want to go to space, though? No. Nah, I don't, I don't, I don't even want like to go to leaving space. the house. I don't even want to go to the grocery store. Yeah. It's too far. <laughs> leaving the house is not it's not the move. We don't mm. like to do that. We went out We went out to Treasure Coast today, and we, we left, and we were both silent. We were like, oh, man, going out in public is really exhausting. The sun. Yeah, the sun is, is terrible. It's Plus, I, I had this horrible memory of the Challenger flight. Uh, I think I was three, maybe four years old when the Challenger um, rocket blew up and all the astronauts died in there because in my school they took us all outside to watch the launch because I'm in Florida and Spenity, uh, Kennedy Space Center is in Florida and you can see the launches on a clear day and, and uh, we watched it explode. So I have no desire to go to space. <laughs> Perfectly good in my car. Anywhere my car goes is where I want to go. If it, does, if it requires a rocket, I'm not into it. All right. <laughs> we have more questions? Uh Probably, but I think it's been... Oh, is it time? Oh, look at that. We're just talking. I could also pee probably pee. Is it pee time? It's close to pee time. Drink, drink hard, pee hard? That's right. All right. So drink hard, pee hard. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for dropping in questions. We always appreciate it. Please share it. We always appreciate that more too. And when Reviews it, are cool Reviews too. are cool. Five-star reviews. When this is released on Monday, you guys can go to Apple Music and, and or the podcast site, whatever you go on, and leave a five-star review. That would really help us and appreciate it. So awesome. Thank you guys for joining us, and we will see you next week. Bye.